I'm Sylvia Burgos Tofnes, and this is Deep Roots Radio. Every week, my guests help us connect the dots between what we eat and how it's grown because every single food dollar we spend either protects or degrades the environment, produces foods with high nutrition or empty calories, and either helps pay a fair wage or keeps farm workers among the working poor. We get to make that choice every time we push a cart through the grocery store, visit the farmer's market, and eat at a restaurant. I hope you enjoy this interview. While I was working with the Northwest Area Foundation, that I came to know a gentleman that I've come to truly respect so highly in in the last several years Mm -hmm. as I've known him. His name is Reginaldo Haslett Marroquin. Boy. Regi for short. Yeah. And he is the chief operating officer of the Main Street Project, which is a nonprofit located not too far. It's in it's Northfield, wow. Minnesota. Okay. And their focus is a- an amazing one because it does tie now back into what Deep Roots Radio mm-hmm. is all about. And that is to change the current food system mm-hmm. so that you get an opportunity for small-scale, sustainable poultry-based systems hmm. to be available, to be socially, economically, and environmentally sustainable. Mm-hmm. And there is a real focus in this effort on the Latino and immigrant farmer. Okay. The interesting thing about this is that there are so many, and, and Deep Roots Radio has interviewed so many people who are working on how do we develop a sustainable alternatives food system. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, two weeks ago, I was at a University of Minnesota F event in which one of the pushbacks to me when I made my presentation was, you know, sustainable is nice, but it's not scalable. You know, if we want to mm-hmm. feed ourselves or feed the world, y- you got to do it with high industrialization and GMOs Mm -hmm. or other kinds of chemicals. Mm -hmm. And this Main Street project really tells a very different story and it's demonstrating something that's very, very exciting. So, Rehi, thank you so much for being available uh, with us this morning. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Appreciate this opportunity to be able to have this radio conversation. Oh, I am so glad, Rehi, because I know that what you're doing and what you've begun to demonstrate at the Main Street Project, I mean, we could, we could have a seminar for three days on this, <laughs> but, but given the time that we do have available, can you tell us, first of all, what is it that you're doing in a nutshell? What is it that you're trying to achieve? Well, let's, let's start, um, you know, let's do two, three layers so that People understand the larger context, but not, but we don't miss the, the the actual practical aspect of this. So, at, at a higher level, what we seek to to achieve is an increase in the access to resources, especially the the knowledge and uh, resource, and also the building of power at the community level in order to create a socially, economically, and ecologically resilient food system, which you had sort of described before. And I make emphasis on resilient food system, which if you want to get into, um, I can give you the difference between resiliency versus sustainability, for example. But all of this is done in, in the context of a very large system where we believe that the revitalization of uh, rural communities 
is really critical for the re, um, redesign or the re um, or the solving of our um, a lot of the economic issues associated with uh, the the conventional food system. And, and then once we get into those economic issues, then you can start quickly moving into how those those economic issues affect the social conditions of the majority of people who work to make our food possible and, and cheaper and so on and so forth. But then once you get those two factors, then the ecological has to be part of it because you can't really have the other two without a healthy ecology. Um, and, and we can get deeper into that. But that's really what we are here for, is to be able to bring back a holistic approach to reengineering um, the way we, we, we do food. And by that we mean not farms, not a backyard, not a community uh, garden. We mean a whole system approach. That's, that's really what we are here for. And then within that context, goes we we went through a very long process of analyzing uh the the potential opportunity for getting that done and and if you think of it i mean it's really easy to say what i just said a lot of people say it and stuff uh but how do you actually put that in the context of a 5.9 plus trillion dollar beverage and food industry in this country you know divided into you know this this multitude of pyramids where a few people on the top are in charge of pretty much everything, and and um, also we're in the bottom of all of those pyramids. Whether we're talking about poultry or grains or or or, or meats or whatever we're talking about, at the bottom of those all of those pyramids, there is about 30 plus million people who labor for the system and, and who are one of the three major anchors on how the food is is brought to consumers cheaply and create the illusion that there is such thing as cheap food, yet we, we, we do that on the backs of a lot of these workers and by wrecking the ecology, and when that's not sufficient, going to the government um, for you know, uh, tax-supported subsidies for our food system. You know, so when you look at that whole thing, the way to enter the system, and this goes back to how you talked about the chicken, Really, the core of it is the social conditions and how can we bring out those individuals into farming so we can start reengineering a new system. And when you look at all of that, at the end of the day, it is the chicken that needs to cross the road, so to speak. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> you know, Ray, um, just so that people get a better understanding of your own background, um, Reji began to work on economic development projects with indigenous Guatemalan communities in 1988, and he has served as a consultant to the United Nations Development Programs Bureau for Latin America. So this is a man who's, who's got lots of international background. He's organized several stewardship-certified cooperative forestry businesses in the Midwest and Guatemala, and he's got his degrees in agronomy and international business administration. So actually, you've tied both. The, I mean, when you think about things, and one of the things that I, I noted when um, you've spoken at, at uh, events that I've attended, Rehi, is that you're talking about full systems. So it's not just about setting up a small farm. It's really about the many things that link up to it. So when you think about system, when you're talking about re-engineering a system, what are the various components you're talking about? Well, you know, keep in mind that when, um, when you look at the current system, um, 
it gives you pretty much the blueprint on how you re-engineer it. You don't have to actually create that blueprint because it's already in, immersed in the current blueprint. Now, the difference in, in how you go about this is, um, one, you have to look at what, what can create the quickest and the most attainable uh, tipping point. It is not the ecological or the economics. In fact, this is where a lot of conservation folks have gotten it, it wrong, not because not, not they don't know anything, but because it's really hard to think from the people's and the, and the workers' perspective when you're actually trying to change this. So for us, it was critical to identify within the three core issues that have to be changed to re-engineer the process. We had to think about the economic uh, sector, the ecological sector, and the social. Mm-hmm. And for us, the social was the entry point. Here's why. Economically, um, the, the system is too powerful, it's too entrenched. It owns and controls pretty much everything from land, access to resources, the infrastructure, for example, that was created for the current system. Most of it is for, the, for, for three very specific purposes and is multi-trillion dollar industry, primarily to control weeds, to control fertility of the soil, and to control pests. Uh, if you look at every piece of equipment on the road, chances are you rarely see something that is not related to those three things. Hmm. So ecologically, it's, it's almost impossible to reverse or to change any of those things at a larger scale. I mean, on, on a farm, I can do a lot, and a lot of people are doing that. But the problem is that the system as a whole eats for lunch what you fix for breakfast. Um, and then, politi- I mean, e- e- ecologically, it's too political. You, you, you got this conversation right now, for example, P- President Obama trying to put climate change in the context of, of, um, of national security and all of that, and you immediately get all these people talking about how, you know, climate change is not happening, whatever that co- whole conversation, people who are aware of it. But the, the, the critical thing is that fixing the ecological issue of our food system at that scale, it's it's a real steep uh, climb, and it's, it's, it's going to take close to an, a national revolution to actually change the control and ownership of the conversation in that context. But the one thing we have where every single person of the 30-plus million people in the system are ready to change is the exploited individuals who make our, 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 that, that subsidize our food by working with the system to deliver that subsidy. So if we we figured if we're going to re-engineer the system, most of the other pieces, economically and ecologically, we have known them for a long time. In fact, indigenous wisdom, which is really where we ground the information that that, that we extract in order to, to put it in the context of re-engineering, it has really been around for a long time. The principles that that define healthy foods and good access and all that have been with us for forever. And they precede the, the industrialization process by, you know, at least 10 to 12,000 years. And so what we know is that that whole blueprint is already there, but the strategy is the most important part than actually how you do the, the, the actual physical engineering of this. On the other hand, if you think about it this way, um, food and agriculture, Think about it very simply from an engineering standpoint. Say, you know, you have on the left side of your equation just energy, meaning everything on the periodic table. Mm-hmm. In, the middle, in the middle, you have a process of transformation of that energy. 
you do it with grass-fed cattle. But there is a whole process of transformation because that energy has to be turned into grass first. Mm -hmm. The grass then gets eaten and gets turned into all kinds of things, not just meat. There's also manure. There's also hair. There's also eyes, bones, everything. But it's the same chemical elements that you started with at the beginning. And then we harvest some of it and we process it, uh, uh, manipulate it physically, not chemically sometimes, but, you know, the industry does a lot of chemical manipulation and engineering of that process. And then bring the, the, at the other end something that a consumer can take and, and put in the grill or, or whatever and eat it. Mm-hmm. But what they are eating is the same energy we started with on the, other, on the opposite end. Mm-hmm. That's all there is, no matter what you're talking about, chickens, cows pigs, whatever, vegetables, is the same exact thing. And in a proper engineer, properly engineered, healthy, resilient food system, you use the blueprint of a local ecology to create that process of engineering. That's the foundation to our, our processes here. But that's indigenous wisdom. We just never put that into a scientific perspective and, and not capitalized on it. Instead, we went about reinventing the whole food system as if somehow we know better than the you know, 80-plus billion years that nature has been engineering this process for us. That's where we made the massive, the most important mistake as consumers. The corporations and the system, conventional system as it exists, it knew exactly what it was doing. It was taking ownership and control of our system, and to do that, it had to engineer it so that it could do that. That's why we have GMOs and other things that have nothing to do with feeding the world. It's about ownership and control. To take it back, the foundation for reengineering that process and retaking that ownership and control at a grassroots level requires that people get involved, and the largest amount of people we have who wants to get involved and know how to do this is the workers in the system, plus all the farmers like you and so on and so forth who can partner up and get this done. But more than that, we have a blueprint that is beautifully designed and is more efficient than anything we had ever come up with. So let me ask you, Shahid, let me just, let me just try to see if I, can under, if I fully understand what you're talking about. So when it comes to being... A, resilient or sustainable, and I'll ask you kind of to distinguish between those two, you're talking about ecology, economy, and then the social benefit, right? And your argument is that trying to get it at both, at either the ecological or the economical um, doors is, is where we'd have the most difficult time. That would be the uphill climb because those two areas are so well-owned and protected. And so the way to make the inroad, the way to get our foot in the door is really through the social portion of it because that's where we've got these 33 million people who um, can take a role. Am I understanding you? That is correct, but it's also... Way beyond that, because he, here's what happened. You know, if any any of you listeners who are familiar with the pharaohs pyramid, pharaohs as in the old Egyptian, you know, um, pharaohs. The pharaohs, there is right? There's a book. There's a book called the Pharaohs Pyramid, and in that whole argument, the the critical thing is that the pharaoh really fears a lot of stuff, but the slaves is what the pharaoh fears the most. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the global movements right now, we have one just started about three weeks ago in Guatemala where the whole country is up, up in arms about the corruption in the country, and the vice president just resigned and, and so on. 
it's a huge mess. And so we had Tunisia, and so we had each, you know, the Arab Spring. Look at the social ability, the, the ability of the social forces to change systems. And if we were to organize those social movements, grassroots movements, with a very clear aim at retaking ownership and control, not just at making the folks responsible for the devastation we have uh, accountable, but also removing them from the ownership and control, because as long as the system stays owned and controlled the same way, we really don't change much of it. Mm. So what happens is, if instead of protesting and always arguing about how the conventional system is doing this and that and how it's bad and all that, we don't do much of that. I mean, I, I, I would express it, and I, we, we, we talk about it and we understand it, but that's not where we put our energy. What we figured is, what if, what if, by focusing on the population that provides the labor to the current system, we were able to, one, hold the system more accountable to the true cost of food, so it can't just cheapen its way into competing with us. Mm-hmm. Two, so that's not just that's not about the workers. That's actually about the system and consumers. Two, we know now that for every person that we train that is now working with us in our programming, there is 10, 15, and some cases up to 25 more people who continue to work for the system yet are looking out the other way now. And are really thinking, well, there's a different way for me to be part of this system than just laboring away for the fourth generation now, living in perennial cycles of poverty and all of that, and just being used and abused for the purpose of you know, supporting the claim that there is such a thing as cheap food. Mm-hmm. That argument is really powerful because it does generate the one thing, the one thing that has actually tipped over movements in other places, and that is the idea that there is a different way of doing this, and the individuals who can make that happen having the hope that actually they can be part of it. Because right now, that's the most difficult thing for us to deal with, is, that, is the fact that most of these folks don't think that, they, that it is a possibility for them to be part of a system where they are not workers and, and part of the cheap labor equation. So it's more than just the involvement. It's just more than the benefits. It's about building that ability to create a, a movement that is actually effectively creating that ownership and control. We don't, we don't feel that, you know, going out there and trying to do, you know, legally approach this, this issue um, uh, like a lot of folks are, are doing in the South and so on um, necessarily changes the system. It, it helps those who are changing the system, those movements. But, but, um, but at the end of the day, if we can move these folks into actually farming, whether it's their farm, whether it's working with you under fair trade standards and, 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 and decent working conditions where they are not exploited anymore and abused, it doesn't matter how we manage to create that social movement, but as long as we achieve that, the rest of it will happen as a result of that, because now we can create a whole new way of framing the system, engineering the ecological processes. And the, the nice thing about this whole thing is that if you engineer a process that is efficient from an energy transformation standpoint, again, not from outputs, not from bushels per acre, not from those kinds of very myopic measurement um, indicators that we have in the conventional system right now, but actually from an energy transformation measurement standpoint, when we do that, the economics follow because fortunately for us, energy is, is the money uh, in the system. So, so I don't know if that explains more, but, but I think it, it really at a system level, we have to get a hold 
of these micro factors, bring them down to one specific area of application and bring them down to one specific population target. And uh, by the way, consumers know, once consumers understand this whole equation, this is what they want. This is already tested plenty nationally and globally at this point. Yeah. So let me ask you, Jackie. You've, you've, I think you've grounded us in, in the kind of the philosophy or, or kind of the bases for why you've chosen to do what you do. But could you give us something a, a more specific? Exactly what is it that you're doing um, in your program? I mean, how long is it? Uh, what kinds of things are people learning? And, and how is it being linked up to other systems? So let's, let's do a quick review of, one, why the check, and, and two, what's the ripple economic ecological and, and social effect. So, number one, the chicken is a, universe, a, a global unifier. Um, there is no other meat product that is not only healthier, but also globally available. Mm-hmm. Fish may be healthier, but it's not globally available to every community. Chickens are the one thing that really, they didn't cross the road, they crossed they cross the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't know how to be funny, I guess. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is um, when you start thinking about the, the poultry and you start integrating all of the pieces that come with it, once you get the poultry centered again with a new engineering process in place so that it's not in confinement, so that it's free-range, so that it's maxed out in terms of the productivity or, or optimized in terms of the productivity that you can achieve per unit of production, say, in our case, for meat poultry, is half an acre. For egg layers, is one acre. Those are the units of production in terms of a, 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 a geo blueprint. Um, you take that and move it to a scale, which is what we are now uh, doing, from the unit of production to what we call the economic unit, which is the, the actual um, family farm. One economic unit is just a, a way to, to ground the specifications of how you're going to do this. The economic unit is what, how many production units will support a family. Once you move, start moving it in that direction, very quickly you start to realize that, oh, wait a minute, we got enough demand of feed to set up a, an elevator of our own and control that other part mm. and also make sure that it meets the standards of the system. Well, once you have an elevator, now you can work with a network of growers, grain growers, all kinds of them, so that you can supply the elevator and the poultry in a way that is integrated, that is more cooperative, that is more reflective of the principles, the ecological, economic, and social principles of the system. Once you have poultry production at that scale, whether it's eggs and meat or, 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 or meat, um, in this case, uh, as we started, uh, we started with the meat poultry because it was easier for the Latino families we wanted to introduce to it, then you need poultry processing. So right now we don't have a poultry processor of our own or, or, or owned by the system and the farmers in the system, but, but we are supporting a really nice uh, family-owned poultry processor down 90 miles from us. So it still accomplishes the mission of the, of the system blueprint. But once you have that, you also need uh, transportation and then marketing and distribution. And then what do you do with the, with the manure? So at this point, what we did was we arranged a whole alley cropping system outside of the of the chicken paddocks where we have we started planting already um, um, uh, elderberries on the on the on the rows and then in between the rows in the alleys we are now planting vegetables so we are about to become a, a really large producer of vegetables and it's still because of the poultry um, this we have tested for many many years 
um, but not just us, but other communi communities have done plenty of testing on this. Um, once you have those produ that production, now you need processing for the fruits and the vegetables and distribution and marketing and blah. It just goes on, on, and, and, on. on and on. So let me ask you, uh, so, hey, just, just so that people can get a picture in their minds, when a, a Latino uh, a person, man or woman, uh, graduates from some of your, your uh, programming, how big a flock do they start with? So uh, let, let me answer also both questions here, the previous one about the, the program. So we have curriculum now, two components. Um, one is enterprise management curriculum, which pretty much teaches these individuals coming in that we recruit from, from the communities um, that we work with. We recruit them, they come in, and we say, here, if you want to do poultry, then you will go through a 10-session training program where you will, one, learn the management, the enterprise management aspect of this based on five critical management components that we have put into the curriculum. And then you will also have a, a place which, which we built uh, where we manage four production units where people produce at the same time that they go through the training program. Ten sessions, one or two flocks, and then they graduate. <clears throat> Once they graduate, uh, and that's our next stage of development. We haven't gotten that far yet. We're fairly new at this in terms of being a program. But uh, the next step is for them to move on to either working with some of the farmers, other farmers that already have land uh, that we may be working with, or going and acquiring their own land if they can afford that, or continuing in, in, in what we are putting together now, which is called the central farm, a place where they would have more production units where they can more perennially produce their their poultry. So that's the program in a nutshell, although it, uh, we are now adding alley crop vegetable production, manure management enterprise. So think of those, those, all of those enterprises that are related, which is around 14 of them, and then now engineering them so that one doesn't produce too much in relationship to the other so that right. there is a balance between them. All right. Well, Ray, we are down to one minute left, unfortunately, in our oh show. Oh, my. Yes, that it goes fast. so quickly, yes. And I had wanted to know, before we, we sign off, can you please give us uh, a, a website that people can go to if they want to learn more? Yes. Primarily um, contact us if you want to learn details because all of these details we just talked, only a few of them are on our website. There's a lot of intellectual property issues we've got to protect here and, and, and also be watchful for. But our main site is uh, uh, Main Street Project, one word, MainStreetProject.org. And from there you can go to our Twitter account, you can go to our Facebook and sign up for our mailing list and or just look up the number and give us a call if that's what you want. Well, Regi, thank you so much for being with us this morning. I feel as if we've just scratched the surface, so I hope that perhaps we'll be able to chat again. I am sure we just scratched a little bit and plucked a little bit. we got to keep going at this. <laughs> thank you for the opportunity. Good enough. Thanks an awful lot. Have a good weekend. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Visit my website, bronxtobarn.com, to download this and past interviews, to learn about my farm, and to reserve 100% grass-fed beef. We deliver to Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. Thanks.